Okay. That'll come on eventually. Go ahead. Okay. Um, hey, which is grace, man with arms raised, uh, to look, reveal, Right. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, and I will keep them. Yeah. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law. Obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes, and not towards selfish gain. My eyes away from worthless things, preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servants, so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread. Your laws, laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve, preserve my life in your righteousness. Good stuff. And Sergio says we are live, so we're good to go there. And you got that. Uh, we got uh, Doreen over in Ireland. Doug's wife is sick. She, uh, she was yesterday really badly, and I think she's just burned out from being sick from yesterday. But we'll keep her in prayer. And uh, let's see, I got an update on Siri over in the uh, uh, UK, and he's, uh, what did she say this morning? Um, uh, boy, I didn't write it down. Anyway, we'll continue to pray for Siri. I told her that we would do that. And uh, uh, let's see here. There was one other thing that I wanted to, I didn't write anything down today. I'm just running like a thousand miles an hour. Well, the Lord knows our, our prayer request, so uh, we'll go ahead and just open in prayer, and uh, then we'll go on from there. Heavenly Father, oh, you know the uh, people that are suffering and uh, that uh, have emailed asking for prayers, and the people that uh, I forgot to write down, you know who they are, and you know everybody else that is uh, going through their own trials and troubles. I know Becky and Mark are still going through some uh, some continuing, lingering uh cold or flu that's been going on for months now, and so we want to lift them up as well. And Lord, uh, just be with your people. Help them through their difficult times. Oh, Kathleen. Uh, we want to pray for Kathleen as well, and uh, we'll pray that she is A-OK -okay and that uh, she's uh, healing well from that fall she had. And Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that we can come to you and know that you, even when we forget to uh, remember somebody that you have not and uh so we thank you for your omnipotence and your graciousness and your wonderful wonderful hand upon us lord we uh, pray for this class we pray that it will go smoothly and that uh, uh things will be handled properly and if there's anything that is said that is incorrect that you would uh, just bring it to note so that it could be corrected but we certainly would pray that things are uh right on track and that you are being glorified through this study each week we pray these things that you will be glorified, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Oh, boy, I thought you might be here about an hour ago. We'd have a talk or something, but are you doing okay? Yeah, we're doing okay. How about your wife? Is she here? No. Oh, she okay. Too, too, uh, too busy today. Oh, okay. All right. We're gone all day. And wow. The baby, so. uh, well, that's right. I understand that. Okay, we have uh, July 30th is uh, the day. Yes, that's correct. And this is God's will includes the past, present, and future. In 1854, Hudson Taylor went as a missionary to China where he married Maria Dyer. They were forced to return home to England in 1860 because of illness. When inland China was officially open to foreigners, Taylor, finding no mission board to back him, founded the Interdenominational China Inland Mission Board in 1865, now the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. 
Burden for inland China, Hudson prayed for 24 missionaries, two for each of the unreached provinces of China. By 1866, he had his 24, and he and his family sailed for China with the first 15 of them. One of the new missionaries was 22-year-old Jane Falding, who went by the name of Jenny. She was a Baptist and the daughter of a well-to-do London couple who were friends of the Taylors. On the leisurely voyage, Jenny found that she had much in common with Maria Taylor, and the two women became best friends. With their arrival, the Taylors and their 15 new recruits increased the number of Protestant missionaries in China by exactly or by approximately one quarter. At that time, there were only 14 single European women in all of China, all in Hong Kong or treaty ports. Taylor decided to make the port city of Hangzhou his headquarters and from there send out his missionaries two by two into the inland provinces. The international community in China thought it unwise for Taylor to send single women into the interior, but Taylor found it to be an effective strategy. Jenny, however, chose to remain in Hangzhou. Before they had been there a week, many Chinese were dropping in to meet them, and soon more than 200 were attending their Sunday services. One woman was openly interested in the gospel, and Jenny, who was learning Chinese quickly, visited her daily. The Chinese character sounding most similar to her name, Falding, is Fu, which means happiness. Soon Jenny became known as Miss Happiness, an apt description for the young, bright-faced girl. Jenny, as well as the other CIM missionaries, followed Hudson Taylor's example of wearing Chinese clothing, finding that it would often open up opportunities to meet the Chinese. Miss Happiness was continually being invited into the homes of Chinese women. Tragedy struck the following year when Maria Taylor died of cholera soon after giving birth to her eighth child, Noel, who lived only a week after Maria, Maria's death. Hudson Taylor visited the CIM headquarters at Hangzhou, spending a time of healing with Jenny and the other missionaries. In 1872, Jenny was scheduled to go home to England for a furlough. She made reservations that fell through at the last moment, and she ended up booked on the same steamer to England as Hudson Taylor. On the boat, their friendship developed into something more, and while in England, they were married in her parents' London home. Jenny had all along been the most effective woman's worker in the mission. Now, as Hudson's wife, she became a mentor to the other women in the CIM missionaries. Partners in marriage and ministry, Hudson and Jenny joyously labored together in their beloved China. In 1902, Hudson Taylor resigned as director of China China Inland Mission and Jenny's health deteriorated. They went to live in Switzerland. Her strength continued to decline, and on July 30th, 1904, she was having extreme difficulty breathing. Towards morning, she whispered to Hudson, ask him to take me quickly. Never had a husband a more difficult prayer to pray, but for her sake, he cried out to God to free her spirit. Five minutes later, Jenny's breathing became quiet, and in a short span, there was peace. Her last words were, his grace is sufficient, and then he will not fail. Jenny Falding Taylor always rejoiced in the will of God. After her death, Hudson frequently reminisced that Jenny never thought anything could be better than God's will. Do you rejoice in God's will, or are you afraid of what it might hold for you? God's will is perfect, and anything else we might choose for ourselves will be second best. And Mark 14, 36 says, I want your will, not mine. Okay, amen to that. All right, so we are in the book of Galatians. 
book of Galatians. We're in chapter 2, and we are starting in verse 8 today. Yes, so back it up to the top of wherever the you want. Six, as for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. Eight, for God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter, an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Okay, same, but a couple words different, for he worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. Same thought, just certain. That one says God. I don't know if they inserted that or if that text says God instead of He, but either way. Um, let's see here. Uh, this verse is parenthetical, at least in the New King James Version it is. And it is rightly placed that way by the New King James Version. It is an explanation of the preceding verse which said, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. What Peter had done through the power of the Holy Spirit was also accomplished by Paul. Same thing, demonstrating and proving his apostolic commission. Further, Paul's words place himself on the same level in all ways as that of Peter. He doesn't subordinate himself. Peter is elevated to some super apostleship position, and we'll find out really soon, probably starting today, why that is rightly so. They were all apostles. They were on an equal footing. Christ is the head. That takes me back to where, where is that kind of same thought mentioned? Everybody's kind of on the same footing. In other words, you got the apostles, you got the prophets, but uh, there's supposed to be everybody, take you back to 1 Corinthians, hang on. Well, I was thinking of that one, but I was also thinking of uh, specifically, but that's, that is true too. Um, what is it? Um, where is it said? For it has been declared to me, this is 1 Corinthians 1, concerning you, my brethren, those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. So they're elevating one guy above another, or the ones that, uh, as we talked about, say, I am of Christ are doing it in a super pious way, but they're actually trying to divide the body in the process of doing that. And he asks, is Christ divided? Okay, well, Paul's giving the same type of lesson in the book of Galatians here. You know, I'm, I'm on the same level as Peter. I just went to the Gentiles. He went to the Jews. We had the exact same message. We're not hyper-dispensationalists here. And that was presented to these people. I am the, the apostle to the Gentiles does not mean that I have a different gospel to the Gentiles. Okay. I am of Christ, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And then he goes on, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. And then he qualifies it and he says, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with word, wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And then once again, you get people that take that verse there, tear it out of its context, and they say, oh, you don't need to be baptized. Mm -hmm. Paul didn't say that. He actually said, I baptize this person, this person, oh, and that family too. But he said, my mission as an apostle isn't to baptize people, it is to do this. And so people take that and they say, well, see, you don't need to be baptized in the New Testament. They take it further. They, they, oh, they, they take it a lot. If you get baptized, yeah. you are like 
going against God. Absolutely. There are two commandments that the Lord gave to the church. Two, when he left. It was to all of the church. It was to Jew and it was to Gentile. The Lord's Supper and baptism. Those are the two commands that he gave us. I'm talking about institutions that he told us to take. All right. And I don't know how people can say, well, that only applies to the Jews because there were only Jews there when he was crucified. The new covenant was in his blood. He shed his blood for the new covenant. The question is, I'm going to ask everybody here, if anybody doesn't answer this right, I'm going to ask you to leave. Are we under the new covenant? Everybody answered that right. Nobody has to leave. If we are under the new covenant, and Christ said that under the new covenant, after shedding his blood and resurrecting, then that means that we are to do it. Once again, if you get into hyper-dispensationalism, you are going to get so far off of proper theology, you will be lost in mire forever. It, it, it is horrible. That's a perfect word for it. It's horrible. Uh, they take single verses, they rip them out of the intended context, and then you form a pretext. And everything else after that unwinds, and you've got this very, very sloppy theology. Whatever. Um, one other question. Okay, the only two commandments that we have. Well, not commandments. I yeah, said commandments, right. but I, I yeah, saying. it's the two commands for institutions or ordinances. So okay, when I said commands, both, the what? If you are missing one or both, still believe Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. You you're saved. Right. Absolutely. So yeah. When And you're right. I, I said command. That's why I qualified it afterward is because it, it, there are lots of commands in the New Testament. But um, the same people, this is a good point that you brought up, the same people that say that you don't need to be baptized. They all say that. Okay. What do they do in church on Sundays? They take the Lord's Supper. They may not do it as frequent, frequently as we do, which is every Sunday, but they take the Lord's Supper. And the Lord gave those two ordinances. The first one was actually before he was crucified. This do as often as you remember it in remembrance, or do it as often as you in remembrance of me, right? He, that was before he was crucified. But Paul repeats it in the New Testament, and so they say, well, we have to do that, but we don't have to obey Jesus' other words, which says that go to be baptized, okay? It, it's a very poor theology. It's sloppy. It's, it's not sound. And once again, if you're following somebody on YouTube that teaches hyper-dispensationalism, you say, I'm okay, I like his preaching, other than that, you probably should not be listening to that person because you will be infected. Everything unravels with major doctrines in the Bible, and that is not just a major doctrine, teaching it is a heresy because it's saying that there are two separate gospels going to two separate groups of people. There's one gospel, okay, one, all right? Uh, we went through that in Galatians 1, 6 through 8, and we don't need to repeat it again, but understand that if you are following somebody online that teaches that, they're also teaching other things which are not appropriate, and you are going to be infected by it. It's best to stay away from people that teach that type of... You know, I'll tell you something. Somebody emailed me. Um, uh, what was it? Was it in a letter? It was in a letter. Somebody wrote me a letter, and uh, he asked a question, and this is somebody that everybody in here has heard of. I'm sure of it. Very popular, prominent uh, preacher that's active today. It's not somebody from the past. It's somebody that's out there. And um, uh, apparently, a couple weeks ago, I don't know if it was two Sundays or three Sundays ago, he was teaching on the loss of salvation. And the guy was surprised. He said, he said, you can lose your salvation. And he specifically asked me about that, which I answered. I wrote him a letter back. Um, but I answered it, and I will say this. Somebody that teaches that you can lose their salvation is teaching wrong. But 
I gave him a terminology to help him understand it. It is an after-the-fact false gospel. And the reason why I say that is because when somebody goes up, if I go up to Ron and I say, can I tell you about Jesus? Sure. What am I going to do? I'm going to give you the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised again, right? That's the gospel. Does anybody ever in a gospel presentation say, and you can lose that? No, no nobody, that nobody ever says that. The gospel is the gospel. So this very famous preacher that is out there today, followed by millions of people, I'm sure, I don't have time to watch his sermons. It was just a question proposed to me. And I like the name because many people say good things about him. So I'm not going to give the name. But this guy specifically asked, and I said, well, you know, you have to understand that this is not a salvific issue because nobody says during the gospel presentation, yes, you can lose your salvation. All right. Nobody. If they did, if they said, okay, this is what Jesus did for you, but you can lose this. So you got to start, you know, acting perfectly from this point on, then you have a false gospel. You got that? Yeah. Because they have thrown into the gospel presentation something which is not true. It takes you right back to Galatians 1, 6 through 8. But you can't call it a false gospel because they didn't introduce it when they gave the gospel. However, afterward, they start teaching this in the church. Yes, you can lose your salvation, blah, blah, blah. It becomes, as I said in that letter, an after-the-fact false gospel. And the reason why that is so is because it is false. It is saying that if you can lose your salvation, then it was never of grace, ever. If I can lose, if Charlie Garrett can lose his salvation today because I did something or didn't do something, then it's works. It means that I have to maintain my own salvation. I am not saved by the blood of Christ. Okay, And when it says that Christ died for our sins, what does that mean? Does it mean he died for our sins up until a certain point and on this day at 12 noon? You, yeah, I, there, there's no point where he didn't die for our sins. Our sins are under the blood. Christ died for our sins. The blood is shed. And what God sees when he sees us in all of our imperfections, all he sees is his son. He does not see us in the sense that we or, I mean, he knows who we are. He sees us. He fellowships with us. I'm talking about our sin nature. He no longer views that because we are under the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.19 is such an important verse to remember. God is not counting men's sins against them. Or God, in this version, says he is not imputing our sins to us. Our sins are forgiven. They are done. And it is over. Once again, Think of the terminology. I just it popped into my head, and that's what I wrote the letter back to the guy. Is that it is an after the fact false gospel? Okay. My recommendation is you don't have to leave the church over that. Okay. But you need to make sure that you understand that when you give the gospel presentation, you keep it as simple as possible. God gave us the simple gospel for a reason. It's because it's very hard to be saved any other way. You start throwing in anything else and you start obscuring that simple false gospel and it just muddies the waters. God made it simple. We don't need to damage it in any way. Just present that to them. And then after you give the gospel, you can give all the theological arguments you want. You can take them back to the Old Testament, take them through the feasts of the Lord, give them the 12 first principles, etc., etc. But give them the gospel first. That's what you need to do. And don't introduce all of those other bad doctrine things later. Talking about, well, this person says you can lose your salvation. This way. Forget that. Just leave that alone. Anyway, yes. Quick question. 
you had, or not a question, it's a statement. You had said something about what everyone was thinking about that particular pastor that you're talking about. Okay. Okay, and I'm going to precursor what I'm about to say in a statement to you. You're a great friend. I love you. The work you do is great. I do not follow you. Right. That's right. And they are following a man. Yeah, like, that, that's right. That. Yeah, that's don't follow it. Don't follow Charlie Gare. Don't follow anybody. No. Yeah, you just right. follow Jesus. the word. That's it. That's right. That's very, it's very good point because once you, that's exactly what Paul was writing about in 1 Corinthians. Right. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. I follow, don't do that. Just the word. Just if the word is not being handled properly, then don't go to that church or that particular Bible study online or whatever anymore. If it is, and if there's some small doctrinal errors in there, those things can be overlooked. And I would not say that, you know, teaching that you can lose your salvation is a reason to leave a church. You know that you can't lose your salvation. You know the verses because you've been at the superior word and listened to the Bible studies. And he is not harming anybody's salvation in the process with that. He's just harming their, their walk with the Lord. And so that person needs to be told this is incorrect. Okay. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to say it any differently. People ask me about uh, Calvinist church. I attend a Calvinist church and I really like the pastor. I like what they teach. But once in a while, they introduce Calvinist doctrine. Do you know the difference? Yes. Are you grounded in that? Yes. Okay. Then you can overlook that. Whereas hyper dispensationalism, you can't. Because that is a heresy that is being put into the church and it is now being spread throughout the rest of the doctrine that they're teaching. It's no longer just bad doctrine. The whole thing is infected. So there's a difference, okay? And no church, I don't care what church you go to or what Bible teacher you listen to, going all the way back to Paul himself, there is not one church that you are going to find where the doctrine is absolutely perfect. It is impossible. This is a giant book filled with so much information that, you know, I never thought of that. Oh my God, I never thought of that. You just go through this book and two years later after studying that same passage for every day for two years, somebody says something you never thought of. I, it, is, it is a marvelous book. So you have to just take things uh, so far and no further is what I would say with that. Anyway, um, Paul's words place himself on the same level as Peter. That's where we left off. Okay, <clears throat> again, he is doing this for a reason. He is demonstrating to those in Galatia, this is Paul, that his ministry is valid. He's the one that led them to the Lord. He's the one that told them about the goodness of Christ, the grace of Christ. They are the ones that have started following these people that, you know, they wear certain clothes and they, you know, they got Hebrew writing all over their garments and their, you know, little hats and stuff. And they all very pious looking people. And they're saying, well, you need to be circumcised. That's what he is arguing against. I don't care if somebody lives in Israel. I don't care if they speak Hebrew. Those things don't mean anything to me. I bring up Sergio all the time. When Sergio has a problem with doctrine, who does he call? He calls me. When I have a problem with Hebrew, who do I call? I call him, right? Just because you know Hebrew or just because you're from Israel, just because you, you know, it, I, it doesn't make any difference to me. Unless you know the word and you can properly handle it, it doesn't matter what your culture is or how much theology you learned at this Bible college or that Bible college. The thing that is important is people that know this word. Everything else is superfluous outside of this word. Everything. All right. So Paul is demonstrating to those in Galatia that his ministry is valid and therefore the gospel message that he preached to them is valid. The purpose of his words is to refute the false brethren, okay, who had crept in and proclaimed a gospel of works which is no gospel at all. Peter's name is being brought in for two separate reasons. First, 
because he was well known as an apostle with great authority. And secondly, because of what Paul will show about him in the verses ahead. He's introduced Peter to show that Peter, this great well-known apostle that was there with Jesus right at the beginning and all the way through and was restored as an apostle after Jesus' resurrection, is still fallible. That's why he is doing this, so that people don't get, as Jim said, starstruck, starstruck over following a person. Okay, that's the wrong place to be. Okay, um, speaking about, here we go with, uh, just came to mind, I was talking to Sergio about a passage this morning. He's doing a video for Sunday, and he asked me to evaluate some verses for him. Uh, it, it didn't work out. I, it's probably not going to be in the video, but he's uh, getting the video finalized for Sunday, and he gave me some things to look at, and in the Hebrew, there was a word that he had no idea about. I already knew about it, okay, because I'd looked at that passage before when he asked me to, and we talked about it, and we came to a couple of conclusions about it because it's only used once in the entire Bible, and so when it comes to understanding Hebrew, sometimes even a Hebrew speaker doesn't understand the word itself and its significance, and so that's why the study, not saying that I know more than he does, that's not the point, it's that I had studied the word. I had gone back and I had done the references and the root of it and the etymology and all that kind of stuff, and so he learned something from me over a language, a word in his own language that he was unaware of, okay? So once again, just because somebody is Jewish, just because somebody lives in Israel, just because somebody has a ministry that's based on, you know, whatever, it does not mean that their theology is sound. And in fact, I argued this about a month or two ago in this class, it usually means, and I don't mean to put anybody down, but it usually means that their theology is unsound, okay? because they are using their heritage as a crutch. They don't know the Bible that well. And I've seen quite a few people in Israel that have their websites and they have their daily videos and stuff and their theology is lacking. So just because somebody is in the land and may have a specialty in one area or another does not mean that they are good Bible teachers. Be careful with that. Um, when were we talking about that? Oh, fallacies, I talked about fallacies. Maybe it was during the uh, sermon, but I think it was during the class is it fallacies? You got the source fallacy. Source means what is the source of the information you're receiving? Oh, it's a professor that knows Hebrew and Greek from college. That doesn't mean anything. If the information is wrong, it doesn't matter what he knows, okay? Or the source is, well, he was a preacher for 47 years. Doesn't make any difference. He might not know what he's talking about, okay? The source doesn't matter where it's coming from if it doesn't match the Word of God or whatever discipline you're talking about. You can have a source fallacy in tennis. I mean, you can have it in anything, all right? What you want to do is get rid of the fallacies and focus on whatever discipline you are studying without all of those things coming in and attacking your thinking in the process. It's a really important thing to do. Once again, I've said this before, is that if you want to learn to think clearly, get a book on critical thinking. You can get their college books. You can order them online from Amazon for a dollar because every student of every college in America has had to take a critical thinking course. Well, maybe not all of them, yeah. But then when they get done with it, they'll never read that book again. So they put it out there and they just sell it for what they can get and you can get it for a dollar or two. Take your critical thinking book and read it. Learn what fallacies are like because this is what Paul is doing with these people right here. He's bringing up fallacies in their thinking and he's identifying it to them. Just because this doesn't mean this, but you don't realize that you're making those fallacies. And listen, I do it all the time too. I'm not pointing at anybody here. 
We all make fallacies in thinking because we elevate something that should not be elevated. And that's why once in a while, I will go back and read the critical thinking book again. And I'll say, oh, I remember that. That's where my error in thinking was, is because you just forget. I mean, there's so much information in the world, but if you want to think clearly, you have to learn to think clearly. We are not designed to think clearly. No human is. It's something that has to be trained into us, which is a real problem with all of these uh, uh, you know, things that they're doing in colleges right now. So they're, they're harming the next generation by taking away critical thinking. It's a real sad thing. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, he was well-known. I'm going back to the last sentence. Peter was well-known as an apostle with great authority. And secondly, because of what Paul was showing the verses ahead. <clears throat> taking these points together, they will verify that Paul's message is sound and is to be listened to and adhered to. To demonstrate what Paul did is comparable to everything that Peter did, the book of Acts meticulously records their workings. Now, this is something that I included in the Acts study. We were just talking about this before we started. We'll be finishing the book of Jude this week, and then after that, actually, I'm finishing it tomorrow, and then uh, today is Thursday, right? Saturday, I will start typing the new commentary on the book of Revelation. Okay, and we'll go through that for, it's probably 300 or so verses. So for close to a year, we'll be in Revelation. And then if the Lord hasn't come for us, I'm going to start the book of Acts. But this is what we talked about in the book of Acts. It fits perfectly with what we're talking about here in Galatians right now. So I'm going to make the um, comparison that the book of Acts makes between Peter from Acts 1 through 12 and Paul from Acts 13 through 28. Okay, this is something that the book of Acts does, and it does it for a reason. It's to show that Paul is comparable with Peter and that their ministries are equally valid. And it's also given to show other things such as the transfer of the focus of the Bible from Jew to Gentile during this dispensation. When this dispensation ends at the rapture, then the focus will go back to the Jew. That's what Revelation 4 verse 2 until Revelation 19 verse 10 is therefore is to show us the end times focused on the Jews and what's going on in the world at that time. The epistles of James and Peter, Hebrews, James, and Peter are specifically designed for that time in their history. They will read those books and they will say, we understand. I'm talking about the Jews that are left behind and they will come to an understanding of Christ, especially from the book of Hebrews. That is where their knowledge is going to come from. They're going to take their scriptures. They're going to compare them to what the author of Hebrews says, and they are going to then be able to have sound New Testament theology. Even after the rapture, they're probably not going to want to read Paul's writings just because Paul is writing to the Gentiles, and they're not going to understand a lot of what Paul is saying. They'll get it. I mean, the book of Romans, anybody can pick it up and understand it if they follow from the premise of Jesus. But Hebrews is what's really going to alert them. I'm certain of that. Anyway, here we go. These points Following them, placing them, <coughs> excuse me, side by side, shows the truth of Paul's words. Acts chapter is listed. One, Peter's work began with the Holy Spirit. That is Acts chapter 2. Paul's work began with the Holy Spirit. That is Acts chapter 13. Two, Peter was thought to be drunk and then explains himself in Acts chapter 2. Everybody remember that? Two, Paul was thought to be mad and then explains himself. That's Acts chapter 26. Three, Peter's first sermon begins a new section of the book. That's Acts chapter 2. Three, Paul's first sermon begins a new section of the book. It's Acts chapter 13. Four, Peter has a time of work, preaching, 
and then persecution, Acts 2 through 11. Paul has a time of work, preaching, and then persecution. That's Acts 13 through 19. Five, Peter has trouble after healing a man lame from birth, Acts chapter 3. Five, Paul has trouble after healing a man lame from birth. That's Acts chapter 14. Six, Peter says, silver and gold, I have none, Acts chapter 3. Six, Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver and gold. That's Acts chapter 20. Seven, Peter's shadow heals people, Acts chapter 5. Seven, Paul's handkerchief heals people, Acts chapter 19. Eight, Peter is arrested in the temple and taken to the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 4 and 5. Eight, Paul is arrested in the temple and taken to the Sanhedrin, Acts chapters 21 through 23. Nine, Peter confronts Simon the sorcerer, Acts chapter 8. Nine, Paul confronts Elymas the sorcerer, Acts chapter 13. Ten, Peter performs an exorcism, Acts chapter 5. Ten, Paul performs an exorcism, that's Acts chapter 16. Eleven, Peter raises Tabitha from the dead, Acts chapter 9. Eleven, Paul raises Eutychus, very close. He said Eustace. That's a guy in Alabama. Uh, Eutychus from the dead, Acts chapter 20. Twelve, Peter lays hands for the reception of the Spirit, Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans. Twelve, Paul lays hands for the reception of the Spirit, Acts chapter 19. Thirteen, Peter is worshipped, Acts chapter 10. Thirteen, Paul is worshipped, Acts chapter 14. Where was that? Laocaonia, right? Remember the Laocaonians and the language? Okay, anyway, 14, Peter imprisoned with a miraculous escape, Acts chapter 12. 14, Paul is imprisoned with a miraculous escape, Acts 16. 15, angel, an angel stood by Peter, Acts chapter 12. 15, angel stood by Paul, Acts chapter 27. 16, Peter called by vision to preach in Caesarea, Acts chapter 10, with the house of Cornelius. Paul called by vision to preach in Macedonia, correct, 16. 17, Peter's success brings Jewish jealousy, Acts chapter 5. 17, Paul's success brings Jewish jealousy, Acts chapter 13. 18, Peter heals the bedridden Aeneas. That's Acts chapter 9. Paul heals the bedridden father of Publius. Very good. Acts chapter 28. 19. Peter ordains deacons. Acts chapter 6. 19. Paul ordains elders. Acts chapter 14. 20. Peter is filled, quote, with the Spirit, quote. Acts chapter 4. 20. Paul is, quote, filled with the Spirit, quote. 13. Okay, and then Peter is twice called the apostle to the Jews. Paul is four times called the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, I don't know if that's all the patterns. Those are the ones that some were alerted to me by teacher in uh, uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary. Some of them I found. I'm sure there are more. I just didn't do a real thorough study on it, but it is given for a reason. Those patterns are given in the book of Acts along with Hundreds, if you remember, I mean, there are patterns that go through the book of Acts that are astonishing, and they are given for a reason. Everything in there is to show us the movement of what God is doing in the church, from Peter to Paul, from Jerusalem to Rome, from the Jew to the Gentile, on and on and on. And then there are 
patterns within patterns in there. It's just the most astonishing book to read, but we want to understand that the gospel in the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to 28, whatever the last verse is, all the way through, the gospel is the same gospel, okay? The focus of the gospel is different. And as Jim and I were talking about before we got started today, the fundamental mistake of people and I, I would venture to say that probably 50 to 80% of every error in our theology in the New Testament church comes from a misunderstanding or misapplication of the book of Acts. That's why we started Acts in this class years ago. It was the first thing I said, we have to get this right in this church because if people don't get this right, they're not going to understand why this church is wrong and that church is wrong and why that teacher over there is wrong. Acts is prescriptive describes almost nothing after chapter one where jesus tells them a couple things okay there's what's that did i say pre yes it's descriptive if i said prescriptive erase that from your memory and put a de there instead of a pre it is descriptive it describes what happened in the establishment of the church and it does nothing more than that as far as our doctrine okay i'm talking about our application of our doctrine now we've learned doctrine from the book of acts but not in application of it. We learn the major tenets of the doctrine from that. But you do not take the book of Acts. In Acts 2.38, people are always citing that. If you be baptized, and you know, then you will be saved. And Peter was speaking to the Jews. He was speaking to the people that had just crucified Jesus Christ, and it had nothing, this much, to do with the Gentiles. And yet, churches say, see, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's because they have taken that verse out of its context, and they have made it prescriptive instead of descriptive. And that's the way the book of Acts is. If you get Acts right, your theology is going to be sound. If you get it wrong, your theology is going to be unsound. It's that simple. So we'll get back to Acts here in uh, about a year after we, uh, look at that, I got this black bean soup on my notes here. The, today I went to Publix to get my lunch, and when I got here it was all tilted over and it was everywhere, you know. You know what I thought of when I did that? If you ever saw the Pink Panther, the one with Steve Martin, and he borrows the inspector's uh, pen and he uses it, and then the inspector puts it back into his pocket, and it's one of those fountain pens, and it starts leaking all over him. And as Clouseau finally leaves, he says, why do I feel wet? Well, that's the way I felt when I came in here today. I'm just like I felt wet. And I looked down, and it looked like ink everywhere. I had black bean soup over everything. And sorry about that. I had to divert, but okay. Uh, Book of Acts. Do not misuse the book of Acts and your theology is going to be much better. Anyway, we got a life application. Wasn't that interesting? I mean, that's a good brush up. It's a good brush up on the book of Acts. Um, what's that? Life <laughs> um, I could lick it. Yeah. Um, if you know someone who is caught up in the legalism of returning to the law, such as an aberrant sect or a Judaizing messianic church or synagogue, your greatest weapon in correcting their error is to show them directly from the word the movement of the focus of Acts from Peter to Paul. Then take them to Galatians for correction. If they still won't pay heed, show them in Hebrews where it explicitly says in Hebrews 7, 18, 8, 13, and 10, 9 that the law is obsolete, it is set aside, and it is annulled. Okay, not in that order, but it says it in those three verses. Uh, obsolete and old and set aside. If they still won't listen, then you have done your job. They are brainwashed and would rather listen to men than God's word. Drop them 
from your fellowship, but not from your prayers. Okay, you don't need to be in contact with people that are going to try to reimpose the law of Moses on you. That and Paul is going to make that abundantly clear. What I just said, oh, Charlie shouldn't say that. Don't drop them from your fellowship. Drop them. They're teaching heresy. To reinsert the law of Moses is not bad doctrine. It is heretical. The reason why is the next people that come along are never going to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. They're told that you need to observe the law. They may be saved. They may not be. I have no idea. But the next people that come into their fellowship will not come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Once again, heresy is keeping somebody from being saved. Bad doctrine will not do that, okay? So keep those boxes separate. And, and you know, he, he believes in a mid-trib rapture. He's a heretic. No, it doesn't work that way, okay? Um, two, uh, yeah, 2-9. Uh -oh. Wait, he's got something. Burke's got something. <laughs> Missed the part of it here in this verse. He who effectively worked for Peter right. is effectively working in me. That's right. If if you if you think Peter is authoritative, well, that's why I just went through all those things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I am also because I have the same God. The same that's right. Spirit that's working in me that worked in him. Absolutely. Okay. That's absolutely right. But that's yeah. I may not have been explicit about that, but that's why I showed that pattern is to show that Peter. The focus is on Peter, and we all know that Peter's the big to do. Well, the focus switches to Paul. Everything that happened to Peter happened to Paul. The same spirit that worked effectively in Peter worked in Paul. So you're right. That that is the main focus of that particular verse. Is the the same God is working through with the same gospel message, but He is now moving it from Jew. To Gentile, okay, because why? Why? Well, one, uh, the Gentiles needed saving, right? And the other one is that the Jews had already made up their mind. They'd rejected Christ. That's right. God is not going to waste two thousand years of punishment on the Jews by not evangelizing the rest of the world. Okay, and so the Jews are under punishment. I'm sorry if people disagree with that, but they are were exiled and they were punished because they rejected the Lord. There's no way around that. What happened to them happened to them because of their rejection of Christ. I listen to One for Israel every single day. And all throughout the day, they have people, Jewish people, that come on and they, uh, it, you know, they give their testimony, how they came to Christ. And the same thing happens again and again and again. They acknowledge that they were responsible for their actions. They have come out of the camp. They have now come to Christ. But the Jewish people... Don't want to hear that. They want to blame all of their problems of the past 2,000 years on anybody but them. And that is not the case. They rejected Christ. They have been punished. And until they come to Christ, they are still going to be under this curse, the curse of the law. Last words of the book of Malachi. I mean, the New Testament does not end on a happy note. It ends on a curse. Yeah. The what? Now, what did I say? Oh, I yeah, Old Testament. Thank you. Malachi, Old Testament. Malachi, Old Testament. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the New Testament ends on a really good note for Jew and for Gentile. But these Jews that come to Christ understand that they have been in the wrong. One of them, I was listening to him just a while ago. I've heard it four times. And every time I hear it, I have to laugh. He is struggling with Christianity. He's already been introduced to it by a friend. His wife is now into it. She's she's attending a messianic synagogue. He is the leader of a synagogue. He's the leader of like a, a major synagogue. He's the president of it. And his wife is attending a messianic synagogue and she's doing her own thing. And he's got this problem in his life. And he acknowledges he's got this problem. He's considering suicide. 
the wife calls up his psychiatrist. The psychiatrist calls him and says, I want to speak to you. You need to start going to counseling and everything. And he goes in and they're talking and he uh, started saying, well, my wife is into this thing. And he says, well, pick up your Bible. Go, go to, uh, you know, Psalm 22. Now go to Psalm 1. Now go to Psalm here. Now go to Isaiah this. He says, who's he speaking about? And he sits there and he says, well, I think he's speaking about Jesus. And he says, but Jesus is a Catholic. <laughs> he thought Jesus was a Catholic. Yeah. I mean, this is how far away they are from understanding. And he had never, he said, we never opened the Bible in the synagogue. The Catholic will tell you. Oh, yeah, Jesus, yeah. Well, hey, listen, I've had Baptists say that Jesus was a Baptist, too. So, anyway, but... Uh, you said that he's the president, not the rabbi. No, he's the president of a... Yeah, they have a... Synagogues have a structure. It's like, a, you know, they've got a, a chairman, they've got a vice president, they've got a president, they've got all these offices. And they've got a rabbi, too. But, yeah, he's the president of the Senate. He moved up the things, and he says, well, we want you to be vice president. Okay. And then he says, well, we want you to be president. Okay. But he's not the rabbi. He's just, he's, yeah. And it's, it's a completely, yeah, it's, I guess, running a business, whatever. Anyway, the point is that listen to One for Israel. It's got great music on it all day long. But further, they have those wonderful testimonies. And it's online. You have to listen online. So if you ask me, I will send you the link to it. And it's Agape FM, One for Israel. And you just click on it, and you can listen all day long. And sometimes they play some, you know, it, it, they don't pay for their music. It's, what do you call it, uh, copyright free or whatever. So sometimes they'll throw in stuff like on Saturday morning from uh, Johnny Cash, or you might even hear Hillsong. I mean, just some, you know, they just whatever they can play that's about Jesus. But um, uh, most of it is in Hebrew, and it's just really good good music. Anyway, we got to go on. Yes, Acts 2.9. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. Okay, very similar, just in a different order. I'm not going to read it again. Okay, 2.9. These words follow naturally after the parenthetical insert of verse 8. To show the logical sequence of thought, follow the verses without the parentheses. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, dot, 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 and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So you can see the parenthetical thought is parenthetical. You can just take the verse before it and the verse after it, and it fits seamlessly, just like we had in the sermon last Sunday. Same type of thing. Um, where was I now? Yes, Paul's words show the elevation of his apostolic ministry to the same level as that of Peter, recognized by such as James, Cephas, and John. Cephas is Peter. James is named first as the leader of the church at that time. He was it was he who rendered the final decision at the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. That's correct. Next, Cephas is mentioned. This is Peter's other name. He, along with John, was a part of Jesus' earthly ministry, a special part of it. Three people were included, Peter, James, and James' brother, John. That's right, who got martyred. Together, they were considered as leaders in their own right. James is mentioned first when a particular act of the church is referred to. However, Peter or Cephas is mentioned first by Paul when speaking of the missionary function of the church. Concerning these three, 
Paul notes that they seemed to be pillars. Vincent's word study says that this is better translated as who are in repute as pillars. Not seemed, but are in repute as pillars. The term seemed to be gives the impression that such really wasn't the case, and that was not Paul's intent at all. His intent was that people understood that they were in repute and that he was affirming that, not trying to question it. However, they were the pillars and the reputation noted this, okay? The word pillars gives the obvious mental picture of those who support a body or an organization. They would be those who kept the organization strong and properly structured. In other words, Paul's naming of these three is intended to show that these great representatives were in full approval of his ministry. All three of them, the big pillars, Okay, they perceived, as Paul says, they perceived the grace that had been given to him, meaning Paul. Christ had set his seal of approval on Paul way back in Acts chapter 9 and on his ministry. And they therefore gave both him and Barnabas, his words, the right hand of fellowship. So Paul, and uh, what eventually happened with Paul and Barnabas? They had a disagreement and they split up. But even that, we'll see this again in the book of Acts in 10 years when we get to it again. But um, uh, they, the word in the Greek there uh, for the argument between Peter, I mean Paul and Barnabas is paroxysm. Okay, they had a paroxysm, which means that uh, they almost came to blows. They were really, really angry at each other. And it was over Mark. You know, Mark went with them on the first missionary journey and it doesn't say why he left them, but he left them. And you can figure he probably got homesick or, you know, whatever. I, I, I don't like this food. Whatever it was, it was something that upset Paul enough where he said, he ain't going with me again. But on the second missionary trip, they decided that Barnabas did. I want to take Mark with us. He's okay. And Paul was like, I'm not going with him again. He'd already made up his mind. And that's when they got into this paroxysm. They were in uh, just a heated argument. Now, Mark is later mentioned in Timothy, right? Or maybe Titus, by what's that timothy uh yeah by paul and he says he's useful for me in my ministry so they had reconciled but barnabas is never mentioned again by paul in a positive light so it, they probably never healed that wound and that's something for christians to consider in their own walk when you have a problem with another christian is you know get over it and then just if you're not suited to be around each other don't be around each other i mean you don't have to be fighting each other just cut off the fellowship and you know, I'll see you in heaven and this will all be behind us and leave it at that. It's kind of a lesson, an unsaid lesson in the Bible. But the thing about what happened there, when Barnabas and Paul separated, what happened from that? The gospel went twice as fast. That's right. Barnabas took Mark and he says, I'm leaving. He took him and he went off to uh, the island Sicily or Crete, Crete. And then um, Paul and uh, Silas went in another direction. And so twice the amount of work got done. So even what seems to be for bad turned out to be for good, okay? it's it, it, There are lessons all through the book of Acts like that. It is, oh, what a marvelous book. Anyway, we'll go on. This thing about pillars. He pillars, said yes. Timothy, he said the church is the pillar and ground of truth. Right. So he's, he's equating that truth to Peter, James, and Paul. Yeah, they had the, the truth, and they're confirming that he has the truth. So you can put Paul in there, and you've got three pillars plus one. You've got four. The roof can stand. Right? It's not going to stand. If you've got a roof with only three pillars, It's one corner of it's going to fall down. So, what's that? Just be a round one. Yeah, it'll be a round one. Yeah, and it would have to be, yeah, triangular faith. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, but, you know, the, uh, what is it? The uh, Holy of Holies was 
cubed, yeah. and the New Jerusalem is cubed. cubed. So I would stick with the four pillars and have Peter, Paul, James, and uh, Cephas. Yeah, Peter, Paul, James, and and what? Peter, Paul, James, and John. Oh, John. Okay, I, that's why I was forgetting. I, 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 it's because I said Cephas and then Peter. Yeah. That's why I got myself confused. Thank you. Um, yeah, my, my brain just doesn't work that well. Hence, everything's on notes. Um, let's see here. Okay, so um, the word pillars, I already gave that. Okay, in the Bible, the right hand is the prominent one. It signifies approval, power, and authority. Okay, this is one of the things that we talked about in the book of Acts, and I'll bring it up right now just so that people understand that. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. God does not have a hand, okay? It is a position of authority. He has all authority of God in heaven and earth. That is what that is saying, okay? God does not have parts. We don't want to make mental images of God and say, okay, now I know that God is sitting way up high. He's got a big beard. Well, forget that. And uh, he's, you know, all of this. We don't want to do that. It is simply saying that Christ is at the seat of authority. All power belongs to him. In the Bible, the right hand is the prominent one. It signifies approval, power, and authority. In their eyes, Paul's apostolic ministry was fully qualified to receive this status. Barnabas is mentioned here because it was he who traveled with Paul and who helped establish the church in Galatia. Therefore, the message these two carried to them was fully sanctioned by the leaders of the church. They were to go to the Gentiles, while James, Cephas, and John would continue to evangelize the circumcised. Paul has carefully and methodically shown that his ministry was fully approved of by the very leaders of the church. Now, if you were to take sheer numbers, just sheer numbers, Paul's ministry was way, way, way more effective because he is still having an effect on billions of people throughout the past 2,000 years, whereas Peter, James, and John went all to the Jews and nothing happened. But that is not their fault, and we never want to make a judgment on a ministry based on its size, okay? Jesus started out his ministry with 12 guys. It's gone around the whole world, okay? Um, who was it? Um, Dwight Moody or somebody was going down to South Carolina to a church and it was a rainy night and uh, uh, he showed up and there were just like six people in the church and the, the pastor was so embarrassed he says I'm so sorry he said well don't worry about it. Jesus started with the small thing and it became great he said you know you take what you get and sometimes you have a small ministry and it's effective and sometimes you have a big ministry Think of out in Texas and the guy has thousands and thousands of people people watch him all over the world and it is ineffective because he teaches heresy. He teaches that Jews are saved under the Torah, under obedience to the law of Moses. I don't care how many people he has. I don't care how much money he has made. His ministry is ineffective. As a matter of fact, it's contrary to effectiveness because he teaches heresy. So the numbers don't matter like that. And the point about Paul having a lot of people is because that is what God knew what happened. He knew that the Jews would reject him and that the ministry would go to the Gentiles. So, how long was it? Is it Adoniram Judson? How many years? Oh, years and years yeah, with no fruit. No time. fruit at all. That's right. No that. fruit. Yeah. And eventually, you know, today we remember him as one of the great missionaries of all time. That's right. So um, if this is true, then anyone who showed up afterwards with a different message could not claim that Paul's message was invalid. Okay, because they'd given the right hand of fellowship. He is building his case against the false apostles and their false message which had come to infect the church at Galatia. 
This is so important for us to understand because this letter is included in the Bible. It is a portion of the record and witness concerning the ministry of Paul to the Gentile-led church. To dismiss Paul is to stand opposed to the doctrines of Jesus Christ himself. Life application. Don't believe the false teachers of today who dismiss the words of Paul as having been corrupted by some later body, such as the RCC, who had an agenda to pervert the word of God. This is not an uncommon teacher among Judaizers. They do this all the time. They diminish Paul's writings because they want to show that you are obligated to the law of Moses, that you're under the Torah, and that is absolutely untrue. Paul's words are the same words that we're reading today that he wrote 2,000 years ago. It wasn't corrupted by anybody, but it is without any biblical or historical support at all. Paul's words have been accurately maintained and stand as the necessary instruction for the church age. To state otherwise is to call into question the confidence of the Lord who has given these words to us for the past 2,000 years of church history. Oh, we don't have a sure word. Nobody for the past 2,000 years has had a sure word, but now the Hebrew Roots Movement comes along, and thank God they saved the day for all of us. We actually should be under the law of Moses, and we're supposed to be not eating pork and doing all these other things. I'm sorry. That just is incorrect. It is untrue. Stick to sound theology. Don't get outside of the pages of Scripture. I mean, just stick to the Bible. Don't worry. God has it all under control. Okay, 210. All they asked was that we continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, that is in Acts 2. Remember when he was at um, uh, Ephesus? What is it? Acts 26? No, it can't be 26. It would be, hang on just a second. Let me see if I can find this really quickly. And I'm probably going to cite it here somewhere. And if I do, I apologize for repeating it. But it was Ephesus. They said they would no longer see him again. 16, maybe? Um, uh, let's see here. Feet and stocks. Oh, yeah. I called down for, no, that's not it. Um, he's in Ephesus. And uh, 18, 20, uproar, these brothers, hear my defense. He's there. No, it must you be back there. Yeah, uh, I probably will. Where he meets the people at Ephesus, they say, you're going to be bound by the Holy Spirit. And he says, just... Uh, 20. Well, I'll check it really quickly, and then if it's not, we're just going to move on. But I, I'm something just came to mind right here, and I, I could be completely wrong. And yeah, here it is right here. Uh, you're right, 20. Um, uh, yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provi provided my, necess my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, and then we're in uh, Galatians 2, verse uh, 10. They, they desired only that we should remember the poor. Right there, following along with Acts 20, the very thing which I was also eager to do. All right, verse 210, news flash. The verse must be kept in its proper context. Paul has just acknowledged that he was the designated apostle to the Gentiles. In this acknowledgement, he shows that he and Barnabas were given the right hand of fellowship from James, Cephas, and John the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. In this capacity, he was ordained as the one to go forth evangelizing the Gentiles. However, they asked that he not forget one important thing, which is that we should remember the poor. The we in this verse means Paul and Barnabas. The context shows this is not a general we, meaning the church or the whole church. Additionally, the we was to extend to those who they evangelized, meaning the poor. 
the Gentiles that they evangelized. Does anybody know where I'm going with this? Okay, hang on. Further, there was intent behind this. The poor is not speaking of the poor in general, but the poor among the Jewish believers. Paul was being asked to make an effort to bind these categories of Christians together through the remembrance of the poor. The admonition was given by these pillars of the church for a couple of reasons. The first is that there may be charges that Paul had such a disposition towards the Gentiles that he would forget his own Jewish roots altogether. And secondly, that he, even if he never forgot his roots, they desired that he would be willing to actively bless those from whom the Gentiles received their spiritual heritage, something that he talks about all through Corinthians, right? The record shows that Paul was careful to take this to heart. His later dealings in Acts, Romans, and 1 and 2 Corinthians show that he was faithful to this charge. His words in Romans perfectly reflect this attitude. Let me take you there, Romans chapter 15, 20, 25 through 27. It says, 25, But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors, for if the Gentiles have been partakers of the spiritual things, their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Okay? Concerning our newsflash earlier, the context here does not concern assisting the poor elsewhere. I'm not saying that it's not the right thing to do, so please don't make that conclusion. This does not mean that it is wrong to help them. And other admonitions in the Bible show that helping the poor is a notable thing to do. But this verse is especially dealing with the poor who are Christians, and in particular those from whom our spiritual heritage is derived. At this time, it was the Jews. Later in church history, it applies to those who have carried the message on to other people groups. Paul finishes his thought on this by saying that it was the very thing which I also was eager to do. Vincent's Word Studies notes literally which this very thing. The expression is peculiarly emphatic and brings out the contrast between Judaizing hostility and Paul's spirit of loving zeal. As always, Paul's words have intent. What he relays in this verse is directed towards the Galatians in particular. They had turned their allegiances towards the false apostles and away from Paul and his true gospel message. One of the points which Paul uses to show that the Judaizers were concerned with power and control rather than true evangelism is that they failed to follow through with this one admonition of the church leaders. Paul, however, never failed to adhere to it. Life application. Context is king. When someone cites a verse such as this one, it must be carefully evaluated in order to ensure that its actual purpose is understood and adhered to. Too many churches will use a verse like this as an appeal to a social gospel for helping the poor. Although helping the poor is certainly a wonderful thing, we are not to tear verses out of context in order to justify our personal agendas. The social gospel is what has led churches to the communist thinking that permeates it. All of these liberal left-winging churches started out with somebody introducing the social gospel. We need to take care of all of the poor in the world. That is not what this verse is saying, and you won't find that anywhere else as well. 
To have a poor missions is fine. To go out like we do every Saturday and help the poor is fine. But that is not the job of the church. The job of the church is to build up the body. That is the job of the church. Everything else is secondary to that. The job of the church is to convert people to Christ so that they do not end up chucked into the pit of hell. Okay, and then from there to build them up so that they can learn, to build them up so that they can become trained, build them up so that they can become missionaries, to expand the influence of Christ on this earth. The social gospel is not a help to that. It is a hindrance to that. Because when you have a social gospel, you bring people in through the church, you feed them, and you send them back out the other door without ever introducing Jesus Christ. And that is harmful. It's not helpful because they become dependents on you without having any knowledge of who Christ is. You must have the gospel first. It must be. Okay, verse 211. What's that? Go ahead. I gave you the wrong city or country. Crete is not the place. Okay. Cyprus. Cyprus. I knew it began with an S. When you said Crete, I thought, well... I don't think so, but okay, Cyprus. That's right. Yeah. chapter. When I was looking over here for that. That's okay. I'm glad you got that though, because I'm glad you did that. So it was Barnabas and Mark that went to Cyprus. Cyprus. Gotcha. Okay. That'll save you fifteen emails. Yeah, it'll save me at least fifteen emails. Thank you, Burke. All right. Yeah, somebody's already sent me too, I guarantee you. It's it's Cyprus, it's not Creed. I always appreciate when they do that though, because I don't want to have things that are incorrect on there, but I didn't say it. I said one of these islands. So and then was it you that said Crete? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So I I'll blame it on you this time. Anyway, good. Um All right, two eleven. Thank you, Burke. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Okay, this one says he was to be blamed. Now, this is where Paul gets into Peter, and he's going to continue with this all the way through. I mean, it goes into chapter 3, but you don't realize it because he kind of finishes the thought with Peter about verse 17 or somewhere around there, but he continues with the same train of thought going into chapter 3. But he really, really lays it out here. So, this is Peter, the apostle to the Jews, being rebuked by Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Because he had a ham sandwich, that's right. In verse 118, Paul introduced Peter into the epistle. He brought him in again in 2.7, 2.8, and 2.9, calling him Kephas in verse 9. The naming of Peter and the words used to describe him were not without specific intent. Instead, that intent now begins to be realized. Paul will show that his gospel message is correct by showing how Peter... One of the great pillars of the church, which we just had identified, actually departed from it. Thus, the correction was to be made in him, not in Paul. Okay, having said that, because Paul is correcting Peter on his gospel presentation, what does that mean? I mean, it's explicit. Even though you have to infer it, it means that it is the same same gospel gospel presentation. That's correct. There is not two gospels. There is one. There is a dispute between some texts as to whether the name Peter or Cephas was originally used in verse 11. Both refer to the same individual, and so it doesn't change the overall intent, but probably Paul used Cephas here. This would be to tie him back to his Jewish name and identity. Anytime you see a person's name changed, it's for a reason, okay? He called him Peter, 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 and all of a sudden he says, Kephas. Why would he do that? It's because he is now going to refute him in front of the Judaizers, 
in his writing. And so he's using his Hebrew name, Kephos, or whatever Aramaic name, instead of uh, his uh, Greek name. Okay, so they both mean the same thing. Peter is the rock, Kephos is the rock. It means the same thing. But one is one language, one is another. Okay, this would be to tie him back to his Jewish name and identity, which is then a connection to the entire intent of this passage. Either way, though, he begins with, now when Peter had come to Antioch. This was probably shortly after Paul's visit to Jerusalem and the council's decision, which was rendered in Acts chapter 15. Antioch was in a Gentile area and counted many Gentiles among the roles of the church. While there at Antioch, Peter's actions, which will be explained, necessitated Paul to withstand him to his face. In other words, there would be a dispute which required an open admonishment because of a failure to adhere to the gospel, as Paul says, because he was to be blamed. Now, this isn't just something that I'm just remembering this for a curious reason. He's remembering it because this is as important as any other point that I bring it up every, I brought, I brought it up five times already today. No law. That is the whole point of what he is saying. If you reintroduce the law, as he will say later in the book of Galatians, you have fallen from grace. You are a debtor to the entire law. This is why he's bringing this up right now. The word for blamed here is kata ginosko, and it is more appropriately translated as condemned. The actions of Peter brought about their own condemnation. The explanation of the thought is actually clearly given by Paul in chapter 5. Let me take you there and I'll read you what it says. Chapter 5, verse 2. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, I just said it a second ago, that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And that is what he is saying about Peter right now. Peter, who had been with Jesus the entire time, who had seen everything that could possibly be seen, that had been given as much grace as any person that ever existed because he turned his back on Peter three times and then was restored as an apostle, Peter should have known better. What? Yeah, that's what I said, didn't I? You said turned his back on Peter. Peter turned his back on Jesus three yeah. times. Okay, yeah. That, well, if I said, yeah, okay. Thank you. All right. Um, he turned his back on the Lord three times, and yet he was restored. Thank you. If I said that, I see, that's my mental dyslexia catching up on me. Anyway, that's why this is so important, is because we have to make absolutely sure that we understand that there is no law involved in our salvation or in our continued life in Christ. No law. If we reintroduce the law, we have fallen from grace and we are a debtor to the whole law. And that is how God will see us. That does not mean that we will lose our salvation, but that is how God will see us. From that point on, when we walk away from the grace of God in Christ, so I'm going to start attending a Hebrew Roots Movement church and I'm going to start observing these because the rabbi there says that I have to do that. From that point on, your rewards will be zero. You will get no rewards from the Lord ever because you are trying to live out what Christ has already done for you. And that's what Paul is saying. You're a debtor to the whole law. Because you can't meet the whole law, you cannot be rewarded by God. You will not lose your salvation, but you will get no reward from the Lord for anything you do after that point. You have rejected the cross of Christ. Go ahead. Is the Hebrew roots a Jewish? It, it's, it's a Jewish. What it is is that since Israel has moved back into the land, 
And because people are in the land of Israel and they speak Hebrew, all of a sudden there are authorities on everything. I, I mean, it happens all the time. People are just saying, oh, he's an authority on this and he's authority on that. And so churches start, they can be Gentile pastors, but they start following the law of Moses again. You have to observe the feasts of the Lord. You got to not eat pork. You got to do this. I've even, we had a neighbor. Remember the Lorches? They lived next to me and they attended a Methodist church at the time. But before that, they were in a church and the pastor said, oh no, you can't eat pork. He says, that's quite clear from scripture. And they, they never ate pork because of that. They're trying to observe the law instead of being pleasing in Christ because they now have their theology confused. Yeah. All right. Well, Hebrew roots just takes that and they say, we have to go back to the roots. We have to go back to what the Jews did, which is exactly what is being argued against by Paul right here, right here in the book of Galatians and all the way through his writings is that we are not under law. We are under grace. And if you have committed yourself to that theology until you come out of it again and say, I'm going to trust in the grace of Christ, you are going to get no rewards from God because you have set the standard for yourself. You, I am going to follow the law of Moses, which is impossible. The whole point of the Old Testament is to show us that we need God's grace in Christ. And so is God going to reward you for what you're doing, living that kind of a life? He can't. It is impossible for him to reward you when you're disobedient to the grace of Christ. Now, if somebody comes out of that and they say, I'm so glad that I understand God's grace again. I w knew I was saved and I got into this Hebrew roots and I've come out of that. God is going to start rewarding you again. But until you come out of that theology, he is not going to reward you at all. If you're saved and if you're not saved, you're never going to be saved. You're going to be stuck in that. That's the whole point of Christ coming is to get people out of the law and get them into the grace and to start living for God in the spirit and not by the letter of the law. Anyway, yes. In, in chapter one, he said that he spent 15 days with Peter. Right. You don't think that they discussed diets? Oh, sure they did. They discussed everything. But Peter, he's going to explain why here. Yeah. Oh, he's going to explain it. Remember is that when the Judaizers came up, he started to withdraw. Peter was weak. That's the whole point that he's saying. Okay. Peter was weak. That's that, so we'll get to that. Okay. Anyway, uh, where are we? Um, Peter, Kephas, okay, Acts 15. Okay, uh, like being circumcised in order to obtain God's favor, what Peter will be described as doing in this account is actually the setting aside of the grace of Jesus Christ. It is a self-condemning act. Paul will have to correct him on this. As a side note, there have been numerous bizarre attempts by scholars to change the severity of what occurs in this account into one of a less serious nature. This is certainly because of the status of Peter. Some say that it is not the same Peter, but a lesser disciple. The fact that Paul repeatedly brought Peter into the account, giving both names at one time or another, shows this to be absolutely ludicrous. But this is what people will try to do in order to justify their shoddy theology. We do not want to return to the law. We don't want to justify people's errors. If somebody makes an error, like I did a minute ago, you correct me. You know, like, what did I say? Uh, uh, he turned his back on Peter. Talking about Peter turning his back on himself. Well, that's not what I intended. He turned his back on the Lord, you know, and I don't want that on the video without being corrected, so thank you. Anyway, some have tried to assign Paul as the wrongdoer by showing open hostility to Peter and asserting that he was to be condemned for his actions. In essence, he was actually pointing the finger at God who selected Peter as an apostle and who had revealed Christ through him. Others have tried to turn this account into a metaphorical battle between Judaism and Christianity. 
and others have blamed both apostles by saying that one was in error by his actions and the other was in error for his open rebuke of those actions. Those are all incorrect, folks. What is documented here in the book of Galatians is exactly what we needed and it is exactly appropriate. This is an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ that is falling away from the grace of Jesus Christ and another apostle correcting him. And this is appropriate and it needs to be in here and it needs to be handled in that context. All of these and any other such nutty commentaries are entirely unfounded. The account of what occurs here is clear, it is precise, and it is to be taken at face value. Paul was in the right. He will correct Peter because of his failures, and the account is being relayed to the Galatians to show them that their actions are just as worthy of condemnation as the great pillar Peter. Life application. Keep away from nutty commentaries and nutty teachers who attempt to justify great sin of setting aside the grace of Jesus Christ. Instead, hold fast to it as it is your very life and your connection to God through him. I mean, it's that serious. We got time for one more if we do it right now. It is that serious. So, did you have a question? No. Oh, okay. I saw your hand moving. I thought maybe you're... Okay, go ahead. 212. Before, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. There you go. It's just like he was when Christ was, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And when it, the heat came on... He got scared and he fled away. Okay, first he denied the Lord and then he fled away. He's doing exactly the same thing here. It shows you, and it's not to be belittling of Peter, but he was a weak-willed person. And the Lord picked the right man for the job because we need these examples. We need, we are. because we are weak-willed people. You know, it's just the way it is. We, we, we get timid around, you know, family members are so hard to evangelize. And we, we, we get weak around them, right? But at the same time, we need to know that there's a time when we need to shut up. They've heard enough. They don't want to hear it. And all we're going to do is damage our, our relationship with them, and we're going to drive them further away. So at the same time, we have to have a balance in that direction as well. It's very hard, but we need to have these examples. Peter was weak. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging that, but Paul got him back on the right track. And by the end of the Bible, Peter is applauding Paul and his writings. In his letter. Absolutely. So we know that it was okay, but these things needed to be in Scripture. They needed to be brought forth for us so that we can do the same things. We can say, I need to be like Paul today because I'm acting like Peter. And it just helps us. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, 2.12. Verse 12 now begins to explain the comment of verse 11, where Paul said he withstood Peter to his face. The reason why this is certain it, why, why this is because before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. Now, this was completely forbidden. You could not eat with the Gentiles as a Jewish person. That is absolutely clear. They could not do that. You see it in the, uh, uh, even at the Passover. They wouldn't even walk into the area of Pilate because they didn't want to be defiled by being around him at the Passover. James, or I'm sorry, Peter, was not to go into the Cornelius's house unless the Spirit had told him, do so. Call no man unclean, uh, call nothing unclean that God is uh, purified, okay? So he went into the house, but he could not have done that otherwise, and he even says that in that account, Acts 10 and 11, okay? So Peter is now understanding, I can eat with the Gentiles. Let me ask you something. Were the Gentiles sitting there having pork sandwiches? Probably. Cheap meat? 
That's what they're going to have. And Peter wasn't even questioning it. He was sitting there eating with the Gentiles, something even if he didn't eat pork, even if he didn't, he was not allowed to do any of what he was doing. And the fact is they were probably eating whatever was served before them. Go ahead. Over there when Peter had that vision. Yeah. He invited these guys to stay overnight. Absolutely. So tell me they didn't have breakfast. They had breakfast. That's right. They had, I'm telling you what, they ordered out to McDonald's. They had sausage and bacon. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was there and he, he ate with them and he lived with them. And what? And the Holy Spirit came down on them at that time. They didn't take seven days of purification. They didn't do any of the Levitical laws. The Holy Spirit came down on them as he spoke. All right. Okay, before their arrival, Peter did what was other what would otherwise ceremonially defile him, according to the Jewish customs. Oh, let me go back here. Certain men came uh, with James; he would eat with the Gentiles. Why these men came from James is not stated. They may have been visitors, or they may have been appointed to go and check on doctrine, or for some other reason. The fact that they came from James, not why they came from James, uh, yes, is what. Paul focuses on. It's just the fact that they did come from James, not why. Okay, before their arrival, Peter did what would otherwise ceremonially defile him according to the Jewish customs. He would eat with the Gentiles. He knew from a previous encounter with Gentiles that God had accepted them as they were and that he could not be defiled by them. This is found in the, here I said it a second ago, the account of Acts 10 and 11. However, Peter failed to take the lesson to heart and apply it in all circumstances. Instead, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Charles Ellicott notes that the Greek expression brings out the timid and gradual withdrawal, ending in complete separation. He just started to slowly back up until he was fine. Oh, I'm not with them. You know, he just, he was just weak. Peter didn't have the intestinal fortitude to stand firmly on the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Instead, he was more worried about the perception of him in the eyes of the Jews who came from James, and so he slowly withdrew himself from them. The Greek word for withdrew comes from the idea of drawing in something like a sail or in the contracting of fingers. He closed himself off and backed away from the Gentiles he had been so cozy with before these Jewish believers came. He feared that they would find fault in him. He may have further feared that they would report it back to the church in Jerusalem. Ooh, Paul gives this account of Peter now to show that those in Galatians, to show those in Galatia that there is a proper adherence to the gospel, and then there is pursuing a false path as well. Peter had chosen the latter, and he became an object lesson for Paul to teach them, and thus all of us, the truth of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ life application, and we're just on time. Are we really willing to stand on the gospel of grace and to never waver in our convictions concerning it? Let us never shrink back from the truth of this wonderful gift, which came at such a high price. Christ fulfilled the law and died in fulfillment of it. What more could we add to that? You have to ask yourself, what could we add to what Jesus Christ did in fulfilling the law so that we could be saved? And then we, we shun it, we turn our back on it, we start attending a church that says that you have to observe the, you know, feasts of uh, tabernacles or something. Everybody needs to make a booth at their house and live in it. That just pictured Christ. That's all it did. It just pictured him and our life in him. And here we're saying, oh, we have to go back and do that. As Paul says in uh, Colossians, 
Those are shadows, but the substance is Christ. Shadow, you grab a shadow and you get nothing. You take the substance and the shadow goes with it. You get the whole thing. All right, we've got to say a prayer and go. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful lessons of this marvelous book of Galatians. It is just so wonderful to see how Paul stood firm on the gospel, and please give us the strength and the wisdom to do so too, to never forsake the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to stand firm on it. And when we see somebody that is not proclaiming it properly, that we would back away from them and have no fellowship with them, because that is where harm comes in. When we extend our hand to them, then they think that what they're doing is correct, and we need to not do that, just as Paul didn't. Thank you for this example, Lord. And Lord, we certainly pray for the people that are afflicted and those that are having difficult times, and we just pray that you'll heal them or bring them back to uh, proper uh, family relationships or whatever else is hindering them from being able to just live in the Spirit with you at all times. And for those that can do so, even in their afflictions, Praise God for them. We thank you for people that are so strong in their faith that nothing afflicts them. It is wonderful to know people like that, and they build us up daily. Thank you for them as well. And we love you, and we praise you, and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let me back this game. Yep. Let's see here. Break the house.